This is Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Welcome to Sticky Beak, Season 2, Episode 12. Entitled From Hollyville to Whirlwind, it's the third and final installment of my trilogy on Sharon Vincent and my final episode for this season. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, JPEX Financial. Do you have a 401k and some savings for future retirement, but don't even know if it's enough to live off of? How much is enough? How often are you thinking about it? The team at JPEX Financial Group can help set your mind at ease. We specialize in creating strategies in the planning and managing of your financial, educational, and investment needs. We help clients pursue their investment goals with sound financial strategies. You deserve a personal, tailored plan. Lasting, meaningful, and open relationships are the foundation of our practice. You've worked hard for your money and should feel confident in your investment choices as you make decisions for your financial future. Your goals are our goals. We are dedicated to your needs and hopes for your future. Visit our website and give us a call at 860-430-5397. Securities offered through Raymond James Financial Services, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Raymond James Financial Services Advisors, Inc. JPEX Financial Group, LLC is not a registered broker-dealer and is independent of Raymond James Financial Services. JPEX Financial Group is located at 78 Eastern Boulevard, Glastonbury, Connecticut please visit their website at www.raymondjames.com backslash JPEX Financial. That's J-P-E-X Financial. As always, please download, share, and review the show and join the Sticky Beaks Facebook page for up-to-date information and conversations about the case. For $5 a month, you can support my work by becoming a Sticky Beak patron on www.patreon.com backslash stickybeak. That page features a whole host of extras, including a recent Q&A session with Joe and me answering listener questions and a rant by Joe himself. And as always, you can email me at justicefordory at gmail.com. Now on to the show. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. In late November 1988, Mark grabbed his new gun and left Sharon at that farmhouse on Whirlwind Hill Road. Landlord Laura West told me Sharon begged Mark to stay, asking, What am I supposed to do? In response, Mark told Sharon to go on state, in other words, to collect welfare. According to her sister Liz Rockwell, Sharon was devastated. She'd only wanted to make a family with Mark. And now, just over four years after their wedding, Doreen was gone and Mark was in the wind. Sarah, Paul, and Sharon were in the wind, too. If the Vincents had once dreamed of living out their days in a pastoral paradise, those dreams were over now. Here's landlord Jimmy Farnham. When I got in touch with him way back in January 2019, his memories were fuzzy, but the opposite of unremarkable. Because we were able to trace the property back. We took a ride up there. We understand it was recently sold in a private sale, or I guess more recently, to a couple. But we we saw that you had rented it out to um, the Vincents, to Mark and Sharon. You, You did what? I'm sorry? You rented it out to Mark and Sharon Vincent at the time that she went missing? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't 100% remember his name even, but he was a guy who worked on our house as a, as a carpenter for uh, Frank's Paint in New Haven, Frank IML. Okay. I think he's retired. I don't, did you hear of that? <clears throat> no, that's new to me. He was like this born-again Christian guy who was like totally spouting, you know, always talking about Christ and... Very, uh, and we had to move into New Haven, so we rented it out to him because he'd worked on the house. We did a renovation of it. And then um, things uh, got super dark. His, he basically went back into his old life. Of uh, We'd heard that he was a drug dealer, and he basically you know, left his wife, and they, I think they had a baby. Yeah, they had two. Yeah, two ba- yeah and, then, and, and the daughter was his daughter by a, a prior marriage, I think. Did you have an opportunity to speak to him about that? To him? Yeah. You know, I don't even remember if I ever did talk to him. No, because I think he'd already 
left the property and his wife was there. She was um, going on welfare and she couldn't pay the rent and then she finally moved out okay. after a few months. But she uh, was all very sad. Yeah, it's very sad. She actually passed away when she was 45. Wait, who? Oh, the wife? Yeah. We tried to we tried to track her down and we can't find an obituary or anything. We can't find any information on how she died, but I think she did move to Ohio with her children and she died at 45. It is sad. And where is he still alive? Uh, yes, he's alive. He's actually joined a, from what we can tell, he's joined and is a leader in like a, a Christian group that works with at-risk children huh. with addiction problems and criminal backgrounds. Is it Teen Challenge? Or? It's Teen Challenge. Yeah, you know about Teen Challenge? Well, I've seen, their, seen them around New Haven. Is it New Haven? Uh, yes. In the Hills section of New Haven, I've seen their sign and I've seen them their vans going around. Okay. Oh, you might have crossed paths with them. So they seem, they seem to be a pretty upright Christian group. Okay. What do you mean by bright? Wait, no, upright, upright. Oh, upright. Like, okay. Like legitimate. Okay. Yeah, because it seems like the last time you spoke to him was just when he was on the property before he... You didn't have any warning that he left? No, no. I just, I just heard that he disappeared and that was it. We stopped paying the rent. Yeah. Did the cops ever, the cops themselves ever speak to you about it? You know, I don't think so. My sister might, because they, they dug up this pit. Um, I'm not sure if it was the police or the private investigator that dug up this pit. Uh, we had a, we had lent our property to a soils class from the Yale Forestry School. So they dug these soil pits to test the soil. And it had the looks of like a shallow grave. So that's why they, it was suspicious. Right, right. But, um... And, and, but I, I don't, I don't remember ever talking to the police. Okay. How did you find me? After being unceremoniously booted from Wallingford's farmlands, Sharon and Sarah and Paul did some bouncing around. This story will continue next after a brief word from our sponsor. As we are in another year living through a worldwide pandemic, it's important to protect yourself and your loved ones. You've worked hard for the things you have, and for the people you share them with. But what if something tragic happened to you? While it's dark and difficult to think about the prospect you won't be around in the future, it will be a reality one day. If you have young children, who will be your children's guardian? If you've been divorced and remarried, will your children from your prior marriage be taken care of? Or if you want to donate to a certain charity after you pass, will those wishes be fulfilled? What will happen to your assets and your estate? If you already have a will or trust, you enjoy that peace of mind. If you don't have a will or trust, contact attorney Nia Serdosky at NCS Law, 860-966-9968. Attorney Serdosky is an estate planning attorney in Connecticut who can explain the differences and benefits of wills and trusts and give you the peace of mind that your affairs are in order and that your loved ones and your estate are provided for and safe. NCS Law. Practicing peace of mind. 860-966-9968. Nia at ncsestateprobatelaw.com. Sharon would later claim she gave Donna Doreen's bedroom set, her canopy bed and dresser, as well as pillows, curtains, and the canopy itself, all in rainbow to match Doreen's missing comforter. In 2019, Donna told me that Sharon had lied and that she never got her daughter's furniture or bedding back. As far as I know, the location of those pieces of evidence remains unclear to this day. One family member put Sharon and her kids up for a while. She did live with us, too, for a little while. When Paul and Sarah were little babies, okay. Sharon had moved into my house and was in a spare room for maybe six months. Okay. Maybe, maybe longer. And, uh, but I, I was thinking today, I can't remember why she was there, but I'm pretty sure after that, she did she go back with Mark? I, I can't remember. I just remember she was with us for about six months or longer. That arrangement did not end well, as Sharon took advantage in a way that harkened back to another story I'd once heard. And I'm like, 
a liar When it came to the question of whether Sharon had been involved with Doreen's disappearance or covered it up, my source was less sure. Left again without a place to live, Sharon packed up the kids and moved to her father Jim's house on Merrimack Street in Danbury. And then she moved back in, I believe, I had thought it was with her parents, but it sounds like it would have just with her father. It was um it was Merrimack Street in Danbury. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's how it's born now. Newspaper articles, not to mention the Wallingford cops, never seemed to have picked up on the fact that Sharon's mother, Patty, was gone, and everyone reported Sharon is living with her parents, plural. On July eighth, nineteen eighty nine, Sharon was living with her father when she admitted to police that she had a score of Doreen's things including school papers and clothes, and her possession. Still, she refused to turn them over to the cops, insisting that she needed to ask Mark first. I don't know how that conversation went, or if Sharon was even able to track Mark down. I do know that two days later, on July 10th, the police visited Sharon on Merrimack Street to demand Doreen's things, but she refused to give up the ghost until presented with a search warrant. And here's something weird. The police never entered that house. State Police Detective John Ragazzi, who died in 2006, would later brag about how easy the whole thing had been to Teresa Lyon, one of Mark's girlfriends. Faced with the warrant, Ragazzi said, Sharon just handed the things over on her dad's doorstep. No search necessary. The police were so sloppy that when Sharon called them later to tell them she'd missed an item, Dorian's tape player with a little microphone. It doesn't appear that they ever went back to get it or insisted she bring it to them. I might be wrong, but if that's true, it's just another piece of evidence lost. Sharon's brother Rick was presented with his own search warrant at his home in Newtown, Connecticut, made infamous by the Sandy Hook shootings in 2012. Rick and Diane's place was located just a half mile from 36 Yogananda Street better known as the home of Sandy Hook killer Adam Lanza and his murdered mother, Nancy. The town would acquire the Yogananda house in 2014 and then burn all its fixtures, furniture, and decor to prevent any eBay sales by twisted treasure seekers before raising it to the ground. Rick and Diane would later move south. Newspeople had accosted their daughter in their driveway, angling for a comment and the neighborhood contained memories better left behind. I don't have the warrant for either Sharon's dad Jim's in Danbury or her brother Rick's in Newtown, but I imagine they were roughly similar to the one for Mark's mother's in Bethel. Years later, upholding Mark's gun conviction in the face of his appeal, the Connecticut Supreme Court characterized that warrant 
the one used at Lori's, as providing, quote, information that could support different theories of criminal activity, including homicide, sexual abuse, assault and battery, kidnapping, or risk of injury to a child. When the police inventoried the items from Jim and Rick's houses, they found a number of items Mark had insisted Doreen took with her when she left. Again, for the record, those were a purple wristwatch with a broken strap, a purple and pink duffel canvas bag, the waist-length denim jacket she always wore, and her burgundy wallet, closed with a strip of Velcro. I want to note, as I have before, that there was no money in the wallet, despite Mark and Sharon's claims that Doreen had $50 or $70 in cash when she ran away, which means either that there was never any money or that someone took the money out after Doreen was gone. Speaking to journalist Jason Barry 12 years later, in 2001, Detective Hanley's frustration was still boiling over. We actually recovered a number of items she was said to have possessed when she disappeared. This couldn't happen, Hanley said. Everything from a certain kind of hairbrush, a denim jacket. There was a litany of clothes. Why did she save all this stuff? It's a year later. Why did she save all of Doreen's stuff? I suppose Barry could have asked Sharon herself, but he wasn't able to track her down. Mark either, in fact. For me, it went beyond asking why Sharon had kept Doreen's things. If it's true Sharon was hiding them to protect Mark, or keeping them as a sort of Damocles to hold over Mark's head. It makes sense that she'd squirrel them away at her father's, where she was living. But had Sharon lived at Rick and Diane's in Newtown? And if so, why would a warrant be necessary to search that house? After all, other members of Sharon's family had had their home searched too, by consent. No search warrant necessary. And I know the police came to our house and looked through some stuff that Sharon had left there. In our garage. Oh. Boxes and stuff. Do you remember when that was about? Oh, no, I'm sorry, I can't. But we're thinking like back. Know, within a year. I, right? Yeah, it was, it was like shortly after the time that Doreen disappeared. As for that source, the police never spoke to her at all, beyond rooting through her rooms. And the police never talked to you? You mean just about him? Yeah. They really did. When I emailed my questions about the search at Rex to now Captain Colavolpe, his response was less than satisfactory. Brother's house, he wrote, was not suspected of anything. I'm assuming Sharon didn't have a lot of room at her house. Detectives retrieved the items from both residences. Items were in travel bags, garbage bags, carrying cases, boxes. I've tried to call Rick and Diane multiple times over the course of my investigation, but all my messages have gone unanswered. I don't know if she would talk about it. Yeah. I don't think she would be rude if you approached her. Mm-hmm. Um, her husband, Rick, is, could be a little rough at times, so you just okay. approach him. Don't take it personally. It's just the way he is. Did Diane and Rick ever tell you anything about interactions with the cops? No. No. I suspect, I mean, Rick is like, he's just weird. Well, you said gruff before, so I appreciate ass now. That's hilarious. But I wanted to know more about Rick and Diane because of a small flurry of phone calls made from the Whirlwind Hill House on June 19, 1988, the Sunday after Doreen disappeared. Six calls were placed on that date, including one to Trumbull 
at 8.27 p.m. and one to Mark's mom at about quarter to 10 that night. The remainder, the ones that really bother me, are four calls to Rick and Diane's house in Newtown, one right after the other at 6.11, 6.13, 6.13, and 6.15 p.m. The first three last only a minute, almost like someone is calling over and over and getting an answering machine, or maybe getting hung up on. But someone picked up on the fourth call and had a conversation lasting five minutes. I'd be really interested to know what they were talking about. I also want to point out how many calls were made for Mark and Sharon's following the day Doreen supposedly ran away. In the last episode, I went into great detail about the 14 collect calls from outside the house that were placed to the Cardinals, and the six calls conferencing in the Cubs via three-way calling. Remember, in the two weeks after Doreen went missing, there were only 52 calls billed to the house on Whirlwind, including the calls to Mark's mother, Lori, and the one Mark forced Donna to make to her mother, Jane, in Florida. We have now accounted for almost 30 of the 52. So I ask, if you had a child missing, wouldn't you be burning up the phone lines calling everyone you knew? And wouldn't all those calls be about the missing child? Meanwhile, as Sharon shuffled Sarah and Paul from house to house and worked her damnedest to protect their father, Mark was hiding out with his brother Brad in California and God knows where else after Brad kicked him out. Mark returned to Connecticut into the waiting arms of Teresa Lyon at the Greyhound bus station in June or July 1989. But Teresa wasn't the only woman he was seeing or using for a place to hide, and Teresa knew it. Finding a number she didn't recognize all over her phone bill, Teresa waited till she was alone to dial it and stumbled onto Roseanne Poloni of Wallingford, she of the clothes burned in the fire pit. Going through my old audio, I stumbled across this conversation with Doreen's Aunt Debbie from Donna's birthday, all the way back in January 2019. The lady that he went out with right directly after Doreen was missing looked exactly like Doreen. Ew! That's what they said. Who said? And he was a sick kind of love with her. That's what I remember somebody saying that. So between Sharon, so after Doreen was missing, he still was Sharon kind of, right? They were still married in 91 at the the trial. Yeah, at the trial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Looks, Shortly after that, they the reporter separated. told Actually, you this at that time. Sharon told us that he told her. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. He told her. She told somebody that Mark said he was tired of living a lie, and he, and he meant the religion, the Christian religion. Tired of living a lie. Tired of living a lie, and that's why they divorced. He's back to his life. So wait, so you did a lot of pronouns. So who told you that? Um, those are the things I'm not positive about. Okay. Well, obviously Sharon, Sharon must have told somebody because he told her he was tired of living a life. Who? Mark told Sharon that. Us, I'm not sure. And then somebody told you that Mark told Sharon that he was tired of living a life. Either somebody told us or Sharon told us. I can't remember. Did you ever talk to her? No, I remember seeing her in the elevator. And, and, you know, she she was present when we were all going to court when he got charged for the gun charge. Yeah, every time he had a court appearance, we went. But I did not know he skipped bail. I did not know he skipped. I know when he got sentenced. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was only a year. I don't know how much he served. But like he, a year. Might have been just that he served a year. And somebody told you that he dated a woman who looked just like Doreen? Just like Doreen. And he was, and he, and he was very um, obsessed with the, whoever this was, too. I can't speak to Mark's wavering on his faith. That, of course, is between him, his God, and probably Pastor Rick. But one thing Debbie had heard was true. Roseanne looked almost exactly like the age-progressed photo of Doreen, imagined as an adult. Google it. The resemblance is chilling. I spoke to some of Roseanne's family members, who said she was flamboyant, spirited, and sassy, with a life that could have been made into a movie. She'd always tried crazy things, 
like mud and jello wrestling, and bounced from place to place, including New Jersey, Colorado, Louisiana, Belize, and Guatemala. She met many a man and had many a fling before returning to Wallingford in 1989 to settle into a condo owned by her brother Anthony, about a quarter of a mile from the old Poloni homestead where she'd grown up. With her sister Sunday, Roseanne formed the Poloni Painting Company. The two painted houses together in Wallingford, many of them built by Anthony. Sunday died on December 13, 2014, at age 56, less than five months after Roseanne, who passed away on July 18th of that year, at 63. The family was adamant that Roseanne met Mark after Doreen went missing pointing to seminal events in their own lives to recall that Roseanne wasn't even in Connecticut in June of 1988. They insisted Roseanne knew nothing about Doreen, never would have let Mark move in if she had, and had only known him a few weeks when he burned her clothes in the fire pit. Later in news articles, Roseanne would be billed as meek and quiet, frightened of Mark and taking questions from behind a door she refused to open. Teresa Lyons said the same thing, that when the two women met in a diner to talk shit about Mark, Roseanne had been scared to death with a thousand eyes in her head. Her family rejected this characterization, calling her truthful and ballsy. Yes, they said Mark was short-tempered, but so was Roseanne, who was never the type to put up with anybody's shit and would have stood toe-to-toe with him. After all, she had once thrown a brick through another boyfriend's window. But it wasn't just Roseanne's ballsiness that I wanted to discuss. One day I'd been tooling around on Google looking for any hint of Roseanne when a scan of an old record journal article I had never seen before suddenly popped up. The title? Charges Tie Parlor to Prostitution. Roseanne had been charged in August of 1977 with operating a sex work ring billed as Afternoon Delight Massage Service in Meriden my hometown, and Wallingford's neighbor. Roseanne, arrested along with a man and another woman, but identified by police as Afternoon Delight's head honcho, had placed ads in area papers with a number to call if you wanted a massage, in a private room, with a shower. Callers were directed to go to a particular restaurant and call again, at which point they were directed to various motels, including some on the Berlin Turnpike a route infamous then and now for sex work and child sex trafficking, and stand outside a particular room. One younger family member told me she'd heard that the mob had shut Roseanne's business down, but another noted that it was a local motorcycle gang who had broken Roseanne's arm for treading on its turf. The family wanted to make one thing crystal clear, though. I needed to respect Roseanne's memory and not rope her dirty laundry into Doreen's case. August of 77, they stressed, was well before Mark and Roseanne had met, and Doreen had not even been two. I promise you, one relative wrote, there is zero connection between the brothel and Mark Vincent. But Roseanne's work as a madam, at least during one blip in her life, still bothered me. In a case where the specter of sex trafficking is all around, seeing it pop up in this odd way wasn't something I could or would ignore. So I called and left a message for then-Detective Cola Volpe, noting that I had something urgent to discuss. Neither he nor anyone from the department has ever called me back. That pissed off Joe Murad, Doreen's uncle on her mother's side. He called the police and mentioned the sex ring asking why they weren't immediately returning an urgent call. We had already looked into that, was the reply. But here's the problem. My message just mentioned an urgent tip, not what it was about. Let's get back to Sharon. In January 1991, the state called her to testify at Mark's gun trial. She was scheduled to show up on the 17th, and reporters waited with bated breath, but Sharon was a no-show. Prosecutor David Holdsbach explained she hadn't been able to make it because her kids were in school, adding, The mother is on some kind of state assistance or welfare, which limits her budget significantly. Welfare had been a constant in Sharon's life since Mark had left her and the children and told her to go on state. Here's a snippet of conversation I had with a member of Sharon's family. 
somebody just said recently, you know, he only goes where people are going to support him. Yeah. Um, but Sharon might have been the uh, the sole exclusion because he was taking care of her and their kids. Yeah, she stayed at, she was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. Right. Do you think that's sort of like the understanding they had when they got together? I don't know. Okay. I just remember them being on like a welfare assistance at times. And, uh, yeah, you know, I felt bad that she had to go through that. When Sharon showed up to court the next day, January 18th, she had to face down a bevy of women who had shown up for Mark like a fan club. Valerie Roth of the Danbury Times wrote that a Brookfield woman, whose address Mark had claimed as his own, and who had posted the bail Mark would later jump, was there. I'm not sure, but I think that's Joanne King. She was surrounded by a clutch of women, all of whom refused to reveal where Mark was living. One of them was Kathy Androsco, who had hidden Mark out at her house, so he said he could avoid talking to Sharon. Kathy would later become Kathy Androsco Vincent, Mark's third wife. Sharon had been expected to testify for several hours about the gun's purchase at Silver City, the day she returned it, and the day Mark forced her to go buy it back. The prosecutor wanted Sharon to challenge the argument made by Mark's defense counsel, that the gun had always been hers and was never Mark's at all. Cross-examining Edward Dewey, the Silver City clerk, Mark's lawyer tried to suggest that the gun was clearly intended for a woman, being too small for a manly man like Mark. Dewey dodged that insinuation, testifying that he had sold guns like that to priests. I gotta tell you the truth, Dewey said. You want to know the answer? It's not unusual for anyone to buy a gun. But Sharon threw the prosecution what Valerie Roth correctly called a curveball, lasting less than two minutes on the stand. That was enough time to tell the jury that she was Mark's wife and that she was choosing not to testify. Prosecutor Halsbach declined to ask Sharon, at the defense's invitation, if her refusal was of her own free will, telling the court he was merely trying to avoid what's called a secondino charge. Secondino versus New Haven Gas, a 1960 Connecticut case, allows a judge to instruct the jury that the failure of a party in this case the state, to produce a witness, allows the inference that the witness would have been unfavorable to its case. In other words, Halsbach wanted to keep the jury from assuming that Sharon would have testified for, as opposed to against, her husband. But it remained unclear to me whether Sharon's refusal to testify had made the best impression. I set out to ask Prosecutor Holsbach myself, but he no longer works for the state. Turns out that in April 2012, he was busted using a so-called video spy pen to secretly film a female defense attorney's legs and feet in open court. A subsequent investigation revealed the following in his office. A tripod, camera manuals, a handheld video game with a camera attachment, a box with a one-way mirror that could secretly take someone's picture, and four boxes of pornographic photos including some showing women bound and gagged. Holzbach's predilections were well known before that, with the DA's office reprimanding him in 1992, 2002, and 2006 for all sorts of creepy behavior. That included leaving out the bondage photos for female staffers to find, lying on his office floor to catch an upward-facing photo of women walking down the hallway, and arriving at the courthouse early to film women from his car as they arrived at work. For years, Holzbach's female co-workers told the investigator they deliberately tried to dress so as not to attract his attention. Put on leave and questioned by reporters, Holzbach refused to admit that he even knew the nature of the allegations, instead saying it's been a lot of months of pain. The DA fired Holzbach but never charged him as a voyeur, a Class D felony. According to his bosses, attending court necessarily came along with the expectation that you'd be photographed and monitored, and so the women who did so with Holzbach had no reasonable expectation of privacy. Sorry, again, let's get back to Sharon. It gets hard in this story to concentrate on the matter at hand, because sometimes it feels like I can't swing a dead cat without hitting a creeper. 
While Sharon protected Mark at the trial, it doesn't mean that her heart remained with him. Encountering Doreen's mother, Donna, in the courthouse, Sharon had some important advice to impart. If you ever get Doreen back, Sharon told Donna, never let her go with Mark. Ever again. After that, Sharon moved to Ohio and fell off the face of the map, at least as far as this story is concerned. There is one notable exception. On December 10, 1988, Sharon spoke to the Wallingford PD by telephone. She was convinced, she told them, that Mark had done something to Doreen and covered it up. He'd always been a manipulator and a liar, she said, and she'd always suspected that he had sexually molested Doreen. Today, Sharon is not here to answer any more questions, and her words to Donna and to the police sound like warnings from beyond the grave. Sharon's own family had their suspicions about Sharon's death until I did my best to lay them to rest. And then, of course, I discovered soon after that she was dead. Yeah, There's Nobody knows what happened, how she died either. No, I do. <laughs> yeah, that's a little suspicious to us as well. And Sarah, I'm sure, did she tell you whether she knew? No, so I... So she died. She had a heart attack. She had diabetes and um, a heart, uh, like heart disease, and she died. Yeah, the same thing as Steve. Yeah. So Sharon's cause of death wasn't a surprise, especially because the Rockwells had a family history of heart problems and diabetes. In 1997, researching her book, How Shit and Strawberries, Sharon's Aunt Vera had reached out to her five remaining Rocky siblings, including her brother, Jim. All of them had grown to adulthood, she noted, except for a sister who died from cancer at 36 and a brother who suffered a cerebral accident at 42. It was old age, diabetes, and heart disease, Vera wrote, that thinned out the rest of us. The question remained, however, why the cause of Sharon's death had been such a mystery, almost like it was a secret. On Sharon? I correct. Yeah. No, I, like I said, I'll send that. I have the coroner's report. They did a full autopsy. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting that you're telling me this because they told me nobody knows why she died. So, so misinformation is being spread amongst the family. Rockwell is a complicated name to have. Sharon's sister Liz was full of information about the family's relationship to none other than the artist Norman and the Queen of England, and told me beautiful stories about her mother, Patty. But each memory is tinged with the sorrow of Patty's death, which left the family divided and Sharon without a mother, just as she would leave her own children a few decades later. Tragedies like these are so common in the Rockwell family that it's almost like a curse, something Vera, or Rinky as she was once called, knew full well. In Cowshit and Strawberries, she captures the day of August 4th, 1944. She had been 11, splashing in the swimming hole when she heard her brother Jimmy crying. What's happened to him, she thought. Vera writes, Rinky set out on the run to find out. Thoughts flew through her head in tune with her flying feet. She remembered the time she had cut her foot on glass in the swimming hole and she had had to be carried home crying and have it soaked in Lysol and bandaged with an old sheet. She rounded the corner of the drive and saw them all coming toward her. Jimmy was crying, but he wasn't bleeding. She saw Pop and Hal and Jimmy and Libby, but Mama wasn't with them. Where's Mama? What have you done with Mama? She didn't really have to ask, because inside she knew. Mama and Pop had gone to see Libby in Waterbury and when they were coming home, they had to rush to catch the bus. Pop and Livy hurried on to hold the bus, and Mama struggled to keep up. She called out to them to wait, then collapsed in the street and had to be helped inside an air-conditioned store. She died quickly from either a heart attack or a stroke. Brinky was never quite sure which. Elizabeth Hinman Carl Rockwell, Sharon's grandmother, was gone at 54. Getting my hands on Sharon's autopsy had been helpful, but so many questions remained, including why Sharon hadn't been honored with an obituary. Here I am discussing it with Sharon's family, complete with a bit of what passes for comedy in this story. 
not to sound offensive or anything, but my husband and I had thought, A, maybe Mark did something, and B... That was my first thought when I yeah. heard that. Yeah. We thought too maybe maybe it was suicide because there was no obituary that we could find. Well, um, that was because her husband at the time. Um, not, not, I'm sorry, not. That was just gone. Um, yeah. What was his name? Hutchinson. Um, I forgot his first name. Edward. Oh I can see his face in my mind, but I can't remember his name. It's um Edward. Is it Edward? <laughs> he um. He was, what's the word for it? He was like a 12-year-old in a in a man's body. Really? Yeah, he, he was uh, not very mature. Okay. Um, very nice, very nice guy, but just not educated, not mature, didn't know how to handle situations. Sharon was like his mother Oh. That, with that second marriage. Yeah, his so name he, was... No, he didn't even know what to do. It was Edward, right? His name's Edward? That's it, yeah, yeah. Did you catch that part about the sun? Because I sat back in my chair. And in another minor shock, I was about to experience some heavy deja vu dating back to my conversation with Jimmy Farnham. I think they had a baby. Uh, yeah, they had two. Yeah, two babies. Yeah. Here's Sharon's family. And I had no idea she had another son. She had two, two with him. And they are messed up, to say the least. Oh. Probably because Edward didn't even know how to be a father, I'm, I'm sure. You know, they were raised in between Danbury and Ohio. Mm-hmm. But these kids are Confederate flag-loving white supremacists, one might say. And it's very obvious if you just look at their public social media profile. The Rockwell family doesn't hear much from Sharon's kids. The two younger boys were 8 and 11 when their mother died, just like Sharon and Liz were back when they lost their mom, Patty, in 1969. Paul did reach out in the fall of 2020, after he, Sarah, and their brothers traveled to Danbury to spruce up Sharon's grave, where there was once a white cross reading, Always in Our Hearts, there is now a small stone bearing the name Sharon Hutchings, along with her dates of death and birth. Nestled next to it is a round stone embedded with smaller white ones in the shape of a dragonfly, surrounded by a burst of color. Paul had been in Connecticut without telling anyone, and he touched briefly on this podcast. There was too much I hadn't covered, he said, and too much that I couldn't understand. His life had gone sideways for a while, but now all was good. He was with his father. It had been June 2019 when I met Paul for the first and only time, though we had spoken on the phone and off the record for hours. Paul was traveling from Ohio to Florida, where he would live briefly with Mark's ex, Teresa Lyon, and he stopped off to see Doreen's Aunt Debbie and me at the memorial event at Gouveia Vineyards. I had tried to have him and Debbie over to my house to meet Joe, but Debbie whispered in my ear that that might not be the best idea. So Paul made his way to Sharon's gravesite, leaving her a photograph in which she smiles and waves by some giant plaster of Paris animal at some long-forgotten tourist trap. Doreen sits astride the animal, holding Sarah and Paul, the two little ones she loves so much, making them toy cities to rival the towns Jimmy and Rinky once used to build in their yard. Paul tore his mother from the photo and kept her with him, leaving what remained, the three long-ago children, at the gravesite. It seemed like he was trying to move on, to start a new life. But just a few days later, he would land back at Teen Challenge with his father. Later, when he was moved to the Vermont campus, after what was rumored to be a breakdown, he would use his day passes to visit Mark back in New Haven. Now, of course, the two are reunited. Liz Rockwell told me that Sharon would be devastated if she knew Mark had any hold on Paul. Another family member had a different point of view. I said, you're going to go to Teen Challenge? I said, you know, you got to be careful. And he said, don't worry, I'm too woke to be brainwashed. Uh, no, not. <laughs> yeah. And no, then I so just... Weird, because Sharon looked the exact same way. Sharon was very influenced by religious... I, we refer to them as cults, but they were just like Bible thumpers. And she always fell into those kind of groups. And, and Mark was in one of those 
kind of got sucked in. Paul isn't always the family told me the easiest one to get along with. He had a temper, his Aunt Liz told me, just like his father. Paul always held out for his way or the highway, stubbornly and sometimes angrily. Liz recalled a time after Doreen was gone when Sharon had to go out and try to leave her son, but he wanted to go with Sharon and he threw a fit. Now that Paul has grown, there are other obstacles in the way. There might be other explanations. I told him the simplest explanation is always the easiest. He he told me that has pitfalls. He talked to me about a whole bunch of stuff because Mark has always talked about conspiracy theories when it comes to what happened to her. Oh, yeah. He's done that from always. It's always somebody else's fault. They're always ganging up on me. It's always, you know, it's like they're always trying to get me to do something One more real quick thing, the conspiracy theory. Is that just a thing that Paul has been touting for a while? I mean, all the kids are off. Like I said, the two youngest ones are like Confederacy white supremacists and they've never lived anywhere near the South. Like they're Ohio and Danbury, Connecticut raised. Paul is definitely one of those people that could get sucked into QAnon. Sarah doesn't believe in He blocked me. You can get me the info. (laughs) I know, I know, right? It would have been helpful. But I'm pretty sure he's just like one of those people that will just drink the water and um, definitely very right wing, um, which is interesting because he's more libertarian. I believe he believes in personal freedoms, but he definitely will drink the Kool Aid and, um, But the Rockwells had been splintered for a long time, with the only thing connecting them, one source told me, being their name. When Jim died in 2013, Sharon and her brother Steve were already gone, and Rick was annoyed that his sister Liz needed a ride from the airport. Liz is in Ohio now, close to Sarah, where she moved to be with Sharon only four months or so before Sharon died. Liz told me how much she had loved her sister and missed her. With her brothers, there had never been any love lost, especially with Steve. Like I said before, Liz had never liked Steve, but at first she was reluctant to tell me why. But as I did my own research, the reasons were open and obvious, and they began to multiply. Steve had been married to two women named Fern and Fawn before marrying his third wife named Patricia like his mother. Patricia had struggled with a lot of bad behavior on Steve's part, some of which was of the garden bad husband variety, mundane, yet enraging. He refused to get a real job and constantly borrowed against credit to pay bills, buying big-ticket items with his wife's earnings while insisting she work full-time. Steve and Patricia's house, I was told, suffered from disrepair and neglect, with junk cars overtaking their yard and another car to match at his father Jim's. After that, the accusations against Steve get much darker. He was a pyromaniac. He had six felony counts against him, apparently for drugs, to which he was addicted. He might have served as an informant. And Steve had a darker addiction to sex and sex workers. He frequented strip clubs and hung out with the ladies he met there, buying them alcohol and driving them around. He'd bring women into the home he shared with Patricia and their two young daughters, to take pornographic pictures and video, sometimes stealing Patricia's lingerie to feature in the shoots. Steve took a particular liking to one of the dancers, Crystal, and set her up with an apartment at the Housatonic Motel. I'm told Steve was obsessed with Crystal and cried for two days after she rejected him. But Liz confirmed what his obituary says, that the two were engaged to be married when he died. When the younger of Steve and Patricia's daughters were very small, Crystal had a baby, and Steve, although he was said to not be the father, was in the delivery room. When Steve wasn't pining for Crystal or his amateur models, he was downloading child porn and terrorizing his daughter's babysitters. Multiple young women accused him of photographing their bare breasts, 
spying on them in the bathroom, exposing himself, and approaching them for sex. One of the most disturbing things whispered about Steve was that he'd refused to ever bathe his two young daughters. He just, he told people, couldn't trust himself. And just when I thought it couldn't get any uglier, it did. There had always been worries about incest within the Rockwell family, concerns that Jim was sexually abusive and that with their mother gone, the children might have taken his lead. What I was told, as I had said, the grandparents lived upstairs, and the mother who died had a sister. Her name was Lynn, and um, we had carried on a conversation with Lynn and a a relationship with Lynn and her husband. And Lynn warned me that there was some shenanigans going on and that Jim had tried something on her at one time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she worried that the same kind of thing was happening with the others, either amongst themselves even, or with mostly with Jim, I think, was her big concern. It was whispered that Steve had engaged in an incestuous relationship with both his sisters. Sharon and Liz, and that he and his father had passed Liz back and forth like a toy. In the opening moments of my phone call with Liz, she had mentioned she had never liked Steve, had confronted him over something that had happened in their past, but she didn't want to say why. But as we spoke, Liz's reluctance melted, and she became an open book. It would be liberating, she told me, to get some things off her chest. The reason why Mark reminded her of Steve, she said, was because Steve had been a pedophile, and she suspected Mark was one too. Liz said that shortly after her mother Patty had died, she'd been alone in the bedroom she shared with Sharon on Merrimack Street. She was 11, and she was alone, with no one else in the house. But suddenly a 14-year-old Steve was there, pushing his way in, trying to force himself on her. Liz rebuffed him, she said, but after that, Steve hung it over her head for years, often forcing her to, quote, service him. Liz didn't offer me specifics, and I didn't press. I did, however, want the answer to one question. I asked Liz about her father, Jim, whether he had ever abused her like her brother had, or whether he had abused Sharon. But Liz was adamant that her father was not that type of man. And that years later, when Jim found out what Steve had done, he told Liz he would have killed his son, had he known. But I still wondered, and so does that long-ago little girl named Rinky. When I spoke to Sharon and Liz's Aunt Vera, she didn't know anything for sure. I have no evidence, she told me, but I have always wondered if Jimmy did use any of his children as a partner. Sharon, she told me. She had always suspected that Jim had made Sharon his victim. And Vera spoke from experience. Because on top of all the family curses the Rockwells have had to bear, heart disease, diabetes, and mothers who die heartbreakingly young, there is one specter that haunts the family more than any other. Please listen as I read a lengthy passage from Vera's book, Cow Shit and Strawberries. Just like Liz when Steve assaulted her, Rinky was 11, and she had just lost her mother. Halsey, Jimmy, and I often hitchhiked into Newtown to see the movies on a Friday night. Even if we weren't lucky enough to get a ride, walking one way wasn't too bad. We mostly got a ride, though. We hung around until the end of the show. We might see the whole program through twice. Then the cameraman, who lived in Danbury and had to drive past the end of the Hollyville Road, would give us a lift to within one mile of our house. We walked singing and laughing down the dark road, past Bakey's farm, past the swimming hole, and up home. Sometimes Hal bought Coca-Cola. He said if you drank it with aspirin, you would get drunk. We often acted drunk, but we weren't. Rinky had always played games with the boys when she was the nurse. As in most big families, there had been a lot of fighting, pushing, poking, teasing, and other benign forms of fooling about. Usually somebody was around to stop things from going too far. Now they had to govern themselves. Rinky didn't know about teenagers and testosterone, and I guess nobody thought about it. She didn't really know what part she was supposed to play when they began a new kind of fooling around. So she cooperated and just let them do whatever they wanted. They wanted to use their tool, 
They never did it when Pop was around, and of course, it was a new thing since Ma had died. It was sort of exciting. She liked to be included, but she also knew that it was somehow wrong, but she didn't really know why. Rinky was fascinated by the way in which their pecker could grow and shrink. She had a look with a mirror to see if anything was happening to her. She knew boys and girls were different, and she knew why, but she thought she would check anyway just in case. Hers didn't look any different, except that it was growing a little bit of red curly hair on the edges. She had always wanted curly hair. Pop mostly slept bare-assed if he wasn't in his long johns, so she knew about his. It looked funny, long, and a bit like a rooster's waddle. She never saw it stick out like the boys. Rinky felt sorry for Pop sometimes, Vera wrote of her childhood self. His face looked sad. She would often awake in the night to find him in bed beside her. It happened more and more. When she felt his pecker against her back, she thought she knew what was coming next so she moved away to the very edge of the bed, as far as she could get. His hands would then stroke her back, and she really liked that. Then he might begin to cry, and she didn't want him to. She learned to lie very still when she awoke to find him there, and not let him know she was awake. Then he did whatever he was doing, and she didn't have to do anything but lie still. But as far as she knew, he never tried to put his pecker into her, just against her back. I think he thought she didn't know he was there. The fact of Pop in her bed was not comforting the way sleeping with Ma had been. It erased the good feelings she used to have when she laid in bed remembering the stories and songs and what it had been like lying against Mama's solid presence. Even her dolls felt lonely because she didn't sing to them. Somehow the winter passed. She can't remember anything about that Christmas. Later that winter, Rinky would sneak off to the post office to send off an order to Montgomery Ward for a pink flannel baby blanket she found in the catalog. When her father found out, he chided her. You're too big for dolls, he said. Maybe she was, Vera wrote of Rinky, but the flannelette blanket was so lovely, so soft and warm and cozy. She wrapped it around her doll and cradled and sang to her. There now, don't cry. Mama's got you. Rockabye baby in the treetops. Her doll was quite a big one, and Rinky sometimes put it beside her when she thought Pop might visit in the night. One day, the next summer, Rinky asked her father to braid her hair and give her money for her Sunday school collection. He told her she couldn't go, that there was too much housework for her to do. Vera writes, Rinky threw down her apple with such force that it smashed against the sitting rock beside the house. She screamed and swore and stamped her feet, but he wouldn't give her money for the collection, and she couldn't go without it. She sobbed her way through the dishes and cleaning up the kitchen, not caring that she got very wet with the splashing when she emptied the water in the dooryard. Pop hid behind the newspaper. When it was much too late, he offered to do her hair, but she wouldn't let him. Then he went for a walk in the woods. He was gone for a long time. Maybe that was when he decided. And that was when Rinky's father shipped her off to Redding, Connecticut, about 10 miles away on her sister Tony's farm. Tony and her husband Sam had two babies, which to Rinky were even better than the dolls. Rinky spent that summer playing with them and keeping a watchful eye on the farm boy, who was not much older than she was. She also spent time getting to know her brother-in-law. Sam, Vera wrote, was big and smiley and gave her hugs. Nobody else gave her hugs. Sam took her on tractor rides, let her ride up on the hay truck as they pitched the hay into a pile and took it back to the barn. Her job was to pack it down. Sam often joined her on the top of the truck in the hay when his brother drove to build the load so it wouldn't topple. On the drive back to the barn from the fields, they would lie and look up as the sky went by overhead, as they were tumbled to and fro. It was friendly, smelling the new hay and getting a bumpy ride. He had lots to do because he went every day to deliver the milk, as well as doing one milking. It was a family business. There were three brothers, two farms, and the old man, their father. At the end of the summer, Rinky's sister Tony told her that her time on the farm was up and that she was being sent back to Hollyville to pack up her things. Her new home would be in Bethel with their Aunt Maud, their mother's sister. Rinky had never visited her, nor could she remember exactly who she was, but she knew she had been at the funeral. 
She just couldn't think what she looked like. Sam took her on the milk round the next day. He left her in Hollyville and said he would be back for her in a few days. It was quiet and dusty and strange in the hot empty house as she waited on the day Sam was to come for her. The flies buzzed in the kitchen. She had her cardboard box of things ready. Somebody, Pop maybe, had already put some of her clothes in and she had added to it the other things she wanted. She couldn't take the books because they were Pop's. Pop had gone off to work and she waited with Skippy, the dog, for Sam to come. She doesn't remember where Jimmy was. Rinky was sitting with her doll wrapped in the pink flannelette blanket when the dog started barking and Sam came in from the driveway. He picked up her box, stuffed the doll on top, and loaded her and her box into the front of the pickup truck. Then they were off on the rest of the mill ground until he came to Aunt Maud's in Bethel. It was a wooden house on a little hill in a street with other houses. Aunt Maud lived upstairs. Her steps were on the outside. Sam carried in the box with the doll's legs sticking up out of the top. Rinky went in, and Aunt Maud opened the screen door. They went into a small, very clean house. She took them into the kitchen, and Sam put down the milk. He was not her usual milkman, but he brought milk this day. Rinky stood up against the refrigerator, making herself as small as possible. Sam didn't stay long, and as he was going out, Maud turned to Rinky. She called her Vera and said, I've only taken you in because it is my duty to do so. That was the end of Rinky's childhood. She was not quite 12. And with that passage, that's the end of Vera's book. Vera is 89 years old now, living in Scotland, and has written another book she says she doesn't have the courage to publish, called On Becoming a Virgin. When I contacted Vera, she was extremely candid, letting me ask as many questions as I wanted, and admitting something the book had not made clear, that her brother-in-law, Sam, had sexually abused her, and his father, too. I mistook it for love, she told me. It is a shame, and I am also afraid one takes love in any form. Vera was so frank, I almost forgot about her family's motto, their tribal chant. All the Rockies in the Dell. They all know, but they won't tell. She made peace a long time ago, she tells me, with the abuse she suffered as a child. Best left in the past, she told me. Forgiveness is very healing. As we talk, I turn Vera's book over and over in my hands examining her little illustrations. I run my fingers over the back, reading the description. Cowshit and Strawberries, it reads, a memoir, as true as it can be, of a Connecticut childhood during the post-depression and World War II years, 1933 to 1945. The Rockies were a family of 13 children, and Rinky was the youngest. This is her account, told through her eyes, in words and pictures of her life in Hollyville. Little remains of the hamlet she knew except the school, the post office, and the railroad tracks. Although the house her pot built from a Sears robot kit still sits on the hill behind the now diminished line of sugar maples, he would not recognize the pretty New England dwelling it has become. Like much of the rest, it has vanished into memory. The house on Miramax Street in Danbury, where Sharon grew up, where she fled with her children, and where she secreted away Doreen's things, that's gone now, too. I have a photo of Sarah and Paul gathered there with their mother and their grandfather, Jim. Baby Sarah plays on the floor, while Sharon and Jim sit together on the couch, each bearing slight smiles and turning toward each other as if to share some private joke. Doreen is there, too, separated from Sharon on the mustard-yellow couch by a small gap that might as well be an ocean. What would life have been like for the two of them, I wonder, if they had known how much they shared? Would the story have turned out differently if Sharon had seen herself in Doreen? If her life hadn't been one marked by abuse and longing and loss? Little Paul is tucked between his sister and his mother, legs crossed, while Doreen reads him a book. I look at other pictures of Doreen cuddling with Paul in his crib, something he told me was their nighttime ritual and of Doreen proudly hoisting Sarah in front of a Christmas tree. And I hope that Sarah and Paul know how much Doreen loved them, just like Liz loved Sharon and Andrea Bauman loved Vanessa and my fifth-grade friend sent to live with her grandmother, 
love the baby sister she was forced to leave behind. Doreen's denim jacket, now safe with Donna forever, still bears an evidence tag with Merrimack Street written in neat script. But so many pieces of that little girl's life, and clues to her likely death, are gone. Unlike Vera, she's not here to tell us her story, or to grant forgiveness to those who caused her pain. We'll never get to read her diary or know what was in her letters, admire the glossy magazine shot she carefully cut out for her scrapbook. The rainbows on Doreen's comforter, if that comforter still exists, are now faded and worn. Perhaps it's buried deep, out in the woods, or under a concrete slab. Those purple Reeboks, our girl's favorite, were never recovered. Sometimes I comfort myself with the idea that wherever she is, they remain with her. The rest sits in a police evidence room, in a box, or maybe a filing cabinet. It's still there, and it's waiting. Just like the house at 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road is waiting. 25 years ago, my friends and I drove that rural landscape scaring ourselves silly and looking out for the lady in white. These days, visitors come in droves to drink wine at Gouveia Vineyards and admire the view, or maybe find that perfect treasure at a pop-up barn sale. At Jimmy Piscotti's, raspberry season reappears and fades like clockwork every May and every August, year after year after year. And through it all, that charming blue farmhouse stands, as it has for over a century now. It bears no sign of the pain to which it once bore witness, just like Merrimack Street bore Sharon's, and the Sears Roebuck home in Hollyville and Sam's farm bore Rinkies, and that forgotten new Fairfield house, where Doreen's aunts Debbie and Carol lived for a year under the specter of Mark Vincent, bore theirs. But for those who loved Doreen Jane Vincent, and those she left behind, it will always be so much more than just a house in which a little girl once lived. I know it is, for me. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Walk softly, children. Find your freedom, little children. Walk softly.